นมูตสาวกวาทูอารหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสานมูตสาวกวาทูอารหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสานมูตสาวกวาทูอารหัตัวสมมาสัมบุทัสานุทังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสานเมื่อเช้าวันนี้ฉันได้ยินว่ามีคนถามว่าเมื่อเช้าวันนี้ฉันได้ยินว่ามีคนถามว่าเมื่อเช้าวันนี้ฉันได้ยินว่ามีคน
that had, just to come back to a meditation which I've done over the years quite a bit of, so it wasn't as if it was a new thought. Uh, but in coming back to it, there was a real stilling, a real settling, a, a welcome feeling of cooling down. You know, just the thought that in 50, 60 years, none of us in this room will be alive, will all be dead. What a beautiful thought. <laughs> <laughs> Now, some of you might want to walk out and then, <laughs> who is this weirdo? <laughs> What's beautiful about it, as far as I'm concerned, is what I found beautiful about it the very first time I ever had the thought, which I can remember was about the age of 36, is what's beautiful about it is that it's honest. And the relief that it brings is the relief from the dishonesty or the, the delusion, the uh, avoidance of the fact that we're mortal. And we can get around as if we're immortal. And if we behave as if we're immortal, well, then the things we do in our life have very serious consequences. But if you realize, well, actually, I mean, you will be dead in a few years' time. It put, puts things into perspective. I mean, I, I, we, on our silent practice retreat we had at the monastery just last week, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this, thinking about my funeral, and thinking who might come, and who wouldn't come and, and uh, whether there be any tunes and you know, whether they could play Santana or whether that was, you know, that was not done anymore or if as a Buddhist monk that wasn't okay or, and whether anybody would cry or not. And, and it was very peaceful, I found. I, I don't know how that affects you to hear me <laughs> sharing this contemplation, but I, I'd like to encourage people to, to try it out because my experience of what it does is it takes me out of the denial, basically. It brings me back to a very real here and now experience that this life is a temporary experience. I'm not always going to be here. And then it's refreshing. It brings things back into perspective. And yes, I feel responsible for my actions, but they're not, you know, they're nothing I do is ultimately important. I mean, not really. I mean, when I die, people will forget about me very quickly. You know, what is important is that I die in a way that I feel good about. That's what I think. Well, that's more important to me. I'd like to die thinking, well, I really made an effort not to upset anybody. You know, that uh, I really made an effort to help people. That's what I'd like to think. Well, well, if I really know that's the case, if I really know that's the case, well, then I've got energy for it. So this meditation that the Buddha encouraged, this uh, Maranasati, it's called in Pali, Recollection on Death, is aimed at bringing about an even-mindedness, a state of, of presence that's here and now based in reality and not caught up in, uh, not caught up in the delusions of, of, of the activity of the world, becoming, trying to become something, trying to be something that we're not, but a recognition, an actual feeling of this is who I am and this is what's important to me. And so, I, w I would say that uh, in response to this question about um, meditation on, on, on death, that one of the important aspects of it is that it's pointing us towards an even-mindedness that's based in reality. Now, there can be even-mindedness or equanimity that is kind of boring apathy or 
you know, just not engaged. Indifference, sometimes the word equanimity is translated as indifference. Another question was asked recently, um, last week when some of you were up at the monastery, was about compassion and detachment. And I think this also is this consideration of even-mindedness applies to this, how, how you can have compassion or uh, sensitivity to the suffering of living beings, of which there's plenty around, how you can really, how we can really feel with the suffering of beings, and at the main, same time maintain a sense of perspective, uh, if this is what's meant by detachment. Now there is a certain sort of detachment which is indifference or cut off, cold indifference, where we can think, oh, well, that's their problem. And sometimes this is a kind of a Buddhist disease. You hear people say, oh, well, it's their karma. They, uh, they've got cancer. Well, I shouldn't have been so angry. It's their karma. Yeah, I wouldn't think like that, actually. I don't think I... <laughs> the karma of thinking a thought like that is really, really not going to do us any good at all. Because what we're doing, if we, if we think like that, basically is denying our heart's compassion. Because we don't know. We don't know if it's somebody's karma they've got, they've got cancer. It may well be. I mean, the karma is one of the causes for, for disease, that's true. But it's only one of the causes for disease. There are many other causes for disease. And so in most cases we don't know how karma is operating. And yet if we see somebody suffering, well the natural response is the natural compassionate response is, how can I help? Now, if, if compassion is really welled up and really alive and, 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 and radiant within us, and we're getting off on it, we're getting lost in it, busy going around loving everybody all over the place and trying to help everybody, uh, it's very easy to get caught up in, 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 in things none of our business. I can remember an experience in my own early life when I was very new to Buddhist teaching, brand new to Buddhist teachings, and totally inflated in how how amazing they were, and and this is the answer to all the problems. And I was I was living at the time um, with some beautiful people. You probably heard me talk before about my beautiful years with the beautiful people up in the hills of northern New South Wales and Australia in the days when I had beautiful hair and beautiful earrings and. And got up all sorts of beautiful things, and and I was I, I had given up some of the other activities that people were involved with, which gave them a beautiful perspective on life, and <laughs> and I spent all my time meditating, and I was up there in the trees and just living on my own, meditating all day long, and and just and I was gotten a hold of this Buddhist teaching on loving kindness, and just focusing this heart of loving kindness, the heart was welling up with loving kindness loving for my mother and loving for my father. Of course, they were the other side of the Tasman Sea. I didn't have to see them, and it was quite easy to feel love towards them when I didn't have to see them. And, and loving for my beautiful auntie and loving for this and that. And I suddenly got this inspiration. It was near Christmas, and I suddenly got this thought that all those people in the local hospital that are going to be stuck in there over Christmas without anybody to be with them, how sad. And, and I rushed into town and didn't have much money, but I went and spent all this money, the little money I had on, on making nice little packages of, you know, dried fruit and nuts and, you know, crystallized ginger and yummy things. And wrapped them all up and went along to the local hospital, full of the love of the Buddha, and, and went to the desk 
and said, I've brought these gifts for the people that are going to be in hospital over Christmas. And the lady just says, that's fine, leave them over there. <laughs> I said, what do you mean, leave them over there? <laughs> I, was, I felt so deflated. I, I felt so utterly unappreciated. And, and remember, I really sunk, sank into uh, d- depression at that time uh, from being so elated. And this wonderful Buddhist teaching on loving kindness and compassion and sharing the love of the Lord Buddha was everybody at this wonderful time. Christmas, it's all the same, you know, let's all join in love and so on. <laughs> and, uh, but there wasn't any perspective on it, there wasn't any detachment. And so it can go that uh, with compassion, if there isn't even mindedness, we can lose perspective and basically just get off on the good feeling. There's a lot of good feeling comes with compassion caring about somebody and and I think sometimes it happens in families you can you know little cute little children and you can be so loving of these children and if you're not careful you can be getting off on the the feeling of being loving and not realize that actually these children are growing up and they don't quite need you to be holding on to them the way you've been holding on to them and but if you're so hooked on the feeling of of loving them that you don't want them to become independent and you don't want them to go away now you might think well Who's he to talk? He's never had any children. Well, there are parallels with seeing young monks grow up in monasteries as well. You can care for somebody very deeply. And if you don't have a good balanced perspective on it, you can be holding on to them just because you're getting off on the feeling of being loving, being compassionate, feeling good about the caring for somebody. So, again, the Buddha always, throughout the teachings, emphasizes even-mindedness so that even when there's something like loving-kindness or compassion or sensitivity to the suffering of others, there does also need to be detachment or a perspective. The other question was asked this evening about how do you treat people equally? The Christmas theme of, of goodwill to all beings. and It's a nice theory. And probably all of us have got some example of, of where we come across in our daily life, it may not necessarily be blatant prejudice, but it is being caught up in our preferences, where we can see somebody who's maybe, you know, just good-looking. You say, well, I'd like, you know, you're with a group of people, who I'd like to hang out with that person just because they, they look good. Now, if we see these tendencies in ourselves, or if we, we see the lack of loving-kindness, or we see ourselves getting caught up in things, it's very easy to fall into a reaction of taking some sort of a position against ourselves and and, and idealizing, idealizing about how it should be. I should be more compassionate or I should be more equanimous or I should be more even-minded or whatever. What's encouraged in practice is, yes, in the beginning to be quite clear about how we, you know, where our values are of life and to recognize that, that there are appropriate values and, and they are based on, on moral uh, decency and, and compassion. But then to come back and say, well, in terms of practice, what can we do? about the situation. And what we can do is be mindful. 
is to really be mindful of how it actually is, how, what's actually taking place. When we lose our even-mindedness, what does it feel like? I sometimes I, I have practiced this, and I remember one year I was in London staying at somebody's house when Wimbledon was on. And uh, I don't know about whether any of you like watching Wimbledon, but I, if I'm staying at somebody's house and Wimbledon's on, I like watching Wimbledon. And, and you know, you get to the finals there and you get some of these great players. And, and I used to like to just watch, turn the television off right in the middle of it and just sit there and feel how it feels. Now, again, you might think this guy's really weird, but <laughs> I, this is not a perverted sort of uh, streak that I have. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interest in saying, well, how caught up am I in this passion? There's nothing wrong with enjoying a good game Wimbledon or rugby or anything else. But what causes us problems is where we get caught up. And if we don't know, if we don't know how to disengage from our passionate preferences and have this even-mindedness, well, in a way... I think we have to admit to ourselves that we're basically caught up in our conditioning. And it's the same with a lot of our prejudices or preferences. It's to do with just the environment that we've been brought up in. But if we don't stop to recognize how much we've invested in these things, then we're really slaves to them. And we perpetrate the injustices. And and sometimes it leaks out in embarrassing and, and regretful ways where we can say hurtful things, and sometimes even in, in relationships that we value. We can end up coming out with comments that are, that are hurtful because some uninspected preference or even prejudice leaks out. So the, there is this encouragement throughout all the Buddha's teachings to, to cultivate an even-mindedness, an equanimity that is not an indifference, but it's, a, it's an alive equanimity. I think of it as a radiant equanimity. When I think of somebody like the teachers that I had the privilege to live with, Vinalajan Chah, Vinalajan Tate, these teachers, they had an even-mindedness, but it was radiant. It was a radiant equanimity. And for me, that's a very attractive goal. Detached indifference I don't find very attractive at all, personally. And I find it thoroughly unattractive. But this radiant equanimity of these teachers, like Hudson Chah, he would sit there sometimes all day at his little hut in his cane chair, and people would come to him. You'd get the local villagers come upset because their only water buffalo has died, and they don't know how they're going to do the fields without this water buffalo. And if they can't do the fields, well, then the kids are not going to get. There won't be money to send the kids to school, and and he will listen. And there's a there's a real a real attention. He's really attending. He's really receiving these people, and really listening to them. And he's there for them. And he's got something to say for them, and they go away happy. And then the next thing along comes somebody from the palace. The king has sent along somebody to invite Ajahn Chah to go down and give a discourse in the palace in Bangkok, and. And uh, he really listens to them, he receives them, and he listens to them. And, and they talk about what's going on in the palace in Bangkok. And, but he's, he's there just in the same way. And it, it's not as if this person's more important than that person. There's a, there's a, what's, what's consistent is the, is the quality of attention. 
So the even-mindedness, I like to think of the even-mindedness, is not so much uh, not having preferences, because I think the preferences are just there, they're conditioned, it doesn't matter, we can't get rid of our preferences, but a perspective on the preferences, a perspective on our preferences, so that we're not defined by them, we're not dragged around by them, we're not pushed around by them. And that's only going to come... um, as far as I can see, from consistent practice. If we've really practiced, when we see ourselves getting caught up in things, we admit it, we're honest about it to ourselves. And don't just default to some sort of, oh, I shouldn't be this way, I should be that way. Condemning ourselves for for having been caught up. So the practice of uh, cultivation of radiant equanimity uh, does involve actually letting ourselves, even generating intensity, not being afraid of intensity. Now some people hold up the ideal of equanimity as if being, being flat and boring is some sort of a spiritual virtue. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but that does happen sometimes. We can get afraid of excitement, afraid of enthusiasm. What's encouraged, rather than being afraid of these things, is, is to carefully and skillfully put ourselves under, into situations where we can experience an intensification and then become more conscious of what happens in our minds. So like the retreat we just had at the monastery, a week of absolute silence. We're all busy running around doing this, that and the other and, and then suddenly time for a silent practice week so we just stop everything and the next day, silence, absolute strict silence for a week. Telephone is turned off and no visitors, sign put up on the door. If you've got a problem, ring and leave a message, the answer phone. It's, it's a bit un- unsociable, but we feel this is what we're supposed to be doing. And I tell you, it really brings about intensity. At the end of it, we all sit around at breakfast. Breakfast table is our house meeting in the morning, and, and we have a little check-in and go around and everybody says how their week was. And, and nobody is smug and cocky at the end of a silent practice week. There's always a certain modesty and sense of, yes, it was a mixed bag, I had some good times, and, but also there were some challenges. Because intensity, what intensity does is it, it shows up the cracks in the system. It shows up where we're actually fragile or where, we're, where we don't see our, our preferences as just preferences. Like, for instance, the preference for nice company. If you're on a silent practice week in your cootie in your room on your own, um, you don't have any nice company, you can start feeling lonely. Or if it's Christmas time and your preference for nice company and or your preference for harmony. Here you are, you have the Christmas period with the family or relatives or whatever, and an intensification, it's definitely a time of intensification. Our preference for concord and harmony gets frustrated. And there's somebody falls out with somebody, and you know we all know what can happen. If we haven't prepared ourselves with a perspective on our preference, we can say, "Oh, it's all going wrong. It's all going wrong." Well, from the practice perspective, actually, intensification is an opportunity for us to look at that, even that tendency to say, "It's all going wrong. It's not going wrong. <laughs> it's not going wrong." Intensity actually is there to show us where we're still caught up in things. Show us where we don't have this even-mindedness. So whether it's um, being on formal retreat where we consciously put ourselves into a very contained intensification or whether it's 
the intensification that comes as a result of, of rituals like Christmas and, and birthdays and so on. You know what it's like on a birthday? You're really looking forward to your birthday and then somebody spoils it for you. You think somebody spoils it for you. Really, they've, in terms of reality, they've offered you the gift of the opportunity to see how lacking you are in equanimity. And rated equanimity is not fully developed. <laughs> it's also easy to talk about, isn't it? So, you know, I'm just talking about it. I can't do any of this stuff. So, <laughs> I'm just talking about it. But it's important to talk about it, I think, because when we find ourselves, as we, as we do from time to time, like today coming down in the car, we were bombing along on this side of the road, Really nice car, nice company. Had a good friend visiting from California, been at the monastery for a few days, and we had really enjoyed spending time together. Coming down to the lovely Dhammapalans here in Leeds, and beautiful weather, and, and we were having a marvelous time. But on the other side of the road, there was a 10 mile traffic jam. Uh, and I felt so sorry for those people over there. They were probably heading off on their holes, their holidays going somewhere for the nice weekend and there they were stuck oh, they're probably still stuck now the whole A1 was completely blocked and these people a lot of them probably some of them had developed radiant equanimity but quite a few of them didn't and their mobile phone wasn't working anymore and the car was overheating and there wasn't any little chef nearby to get a cup of coffee and and in such a situation the wise thing to do is to say well have I developed radiant equanimity enough yet or is there still room to develop further? And if there is, well, then you can start contemplating death. <laughs> of course, death is a very skillful contemplation. However, however, the Buddha always emphasized when we contemplate the fact, the reality of our death, we need to do it with, with wise discernment, with balance, with carefulness. And there is a story in the scriptures where the Buddha had given the teachings on the recollection of death and and um, you, you, those of you that know it, um, perhaps remember that the Buddha gave this teaching and went away on retreat on his own in the forest. And when he came back, half the Sangha was dead. They had actually um, either killed themselves or had somebody else do it because they lost perspective. All these monks meditating on death decided life is disgusting. It's not worth living. It's so revolting that um, I might as well just top myself. And, um, and the story in the scriptures record that this is what happened. And so the Buddha said, rather you've lost perspective and taught mindfulness of breathing as a meditation object that was more balanced and more suitable. So, yes, intensification is important for us to get to become familiar with uh, the tendencies to get stuck, to get caught up, to get lost. But there also needs to be discernment operating. Intensification is one factor, but there also needs to be discernment. We need to use our mind. We need to use our mind. We need to use our intelligence. Now, sometimes, sometimes I will see people. People go on retreat and they get a hold of the meditation object, and they really concentrate, 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 and make their mind very focused, very intense. But they're losing perspective. I, mean, I've, I know many people who've ruined their knees um, through forcing themselves to sit. They've read the scriptures, and there it says in the scriptures where the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, and he says, I will sit here until my bones break, until my blood dries up, and I will not move from the spot until I've realized enlightenment. 
and then you know we come along with our arrogant disposition and say I'm not going to move from this spot my, my bones break my, my blood dry up and for some people unfortunately their bones do break uh, haven't met anybody whose blood dried up but <laughs> thankfully <laughs> but what people don't realize is that the Buddha spent many lifetimes developing the accumulated perfections the ability the potential for his realization and he had a perspective on it uh, sometimes what we do is just come from a place of will and will is not will is will is an, is an important factor but it's not the only factor there needs to be this discernment and say well how balanced am I in my approach to this we need to know willfulness and are we just hammering away are we goal oriented in our practice and just trying to get to the goal you know? because we have we're kind of addicted to being successful and we want to be the first Arahant and Leeds. So far, Dhammapala hasn't produced one single lousy Arahant. I don't know how many years this group's been going, and there's not one Arahant yet. And I'm going to be the first. And, and so from such an arrogant, kind of greedy disposition, you know, somebody could really push themselves in meditation. No discernment. So the Buddha encouraged us to also develop not just, not just intensification which has got its place but also discernment use our minds to see there's a story in the scriptures of this monk who got so focused and so intense in his meditation he was walking up and down his meditation track oh, lots of awful stories tonight this one his feet were bleeding because he'd been walking for so long the track, meditation track was covered in blood and one of the other ones came along and said rather you've lost perspective this is what can happen it's, it's a it's an image, I don't know whether it actually happened or not, it's an image that I think can be applied in all sorts of different aspects of our spiritual life, where if we're trying too hard to be good, too hard to be successful, too hard to be compassionate, too hard to be detached, we lose perspective. So intensification's got its place, but also discernment. And the other point that I, I really think really needs to be held up and mentioned in this in this consideration is the place for that quality of heart that I like the expression of unconditioned willingness or limitless willingness which could also be called love that if we come to our spiritual practice and we, we can appreciate intensity or you know, we want to go on retreats or willing to focus our mind and, and we, we understand the place of discernment and, and read and study and consult and enter into dialogue and, and train our minds and consider things and so on. But if we don't know how to just receive ourselves as we are, with all our limitations, with all our flaws, with all our pimples, and all our scars, and, and all our faults and failures, and then I think we're not probably, you could say, we're not properly equipped for it, really. We're not equipped for the task. And this, this does fit, fortunately, with the theme of Christmas which is what we're supposed to be talking about this evening, the theme of, of uh, goodwill towards all beings 
is not just an idea. It is an idea, it can be grasped as an idea, and we can we can idealize about it and say, well, we all should have goodwill towards all beings. It's a good idea. But again, from the perspective of practice, what can we do? How can we apply ourselves to this principle? If the reality is that there are some people that I don't feel good towards, what do we do? Well, I think we need to recognize that we're, we're, uh, we're limited, we're obstructed. And, and to not get judgmental condemning of ourselves, oh, I'm so limited, I'm so obstructed, and uh, I'm hopeless. Not at all. To, but to say, oh, right, that is a limitation. It's like to know our limitations is wisdom. Wisdom knows limitations. It's one aspect of wisdom. Wisdom knows our limitations. It's idealism to think we don't have any limitations or we should overcome all our limitations. You say, there's a limitation. Actually, I don't feel goodwill towards all beings. I need to work on that. And then, and then from that perspective of even-mindedness, we're not condemning ourselves, we're not judging ourselves, then there's a chance that we can move towards that. And again, to take a quote from the scriptures, which I think is a helpful image that takes us along the path towards even-mindedness in this, in, this, in this direction, in this area, is where the Buddha suggests that uh, we find ourselves in the, in the forest and there's, there's you, your best friend, somebody who you don't know, and your worst enemy. There's four of you, off in the forest. And this is one of those nasty, dark forests 2,000 years ago in India, 2,500 years ago. And he says, these brigands ask you to choose which one of you is going to be sacrificed. He says, one of you is going to be sacrificed. And which ones are going to be? And you have to decide. You, your best friend, somebody you don't know, and your worst enemy, and you're scanning through all these, and who's the right one? You want to, you want to get it right. The Buddha's asking a question, so who's the right one? Which one should go? Well, the Buddha said that if your mind moves in preference to any one of those four, you don't understand my teaching on love and kindness. If you have a preference for any one of those four to being sacrificed, you still don't understand my teaching on loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is that unconditioned receptivity of all beings. No choice. No choice. And this is a potential. We have to be careful and not pick this up as an ideal and then get judgmental of ourselves for not meeting it. Rather, it's an image for helping ourselves come to recognize where we do get caught up in preference, where we do get caught up in thinking, well, you know, most of us, I don't know what you like, but I, of course, was brought up to think, well, I should sacrifice myself, of course. <laughs> you know, some of you might think, oh, well, the one I don't know, get rid of them, because I don't know they are anyway. <laughs> you know, you don't want to get rid of the one you hate, because that's bad. <laughs> Obviously, you know, your best friend. <laughs> but I, of course, think, oh, I should sacrifice myself. And the Buddha says, no, 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 no you, don't, you don't have a clue. You haven't even started yet. So that's a helpful image to contemplate. But also to not just take it as an intellectual exercise, but to work with it as a feeling. Most of you will be familiar with the meditation on loving-kindness. And this is not an intellectual exercise, but, but it's a, an application of attention. 
it's a it's a way we can really give ourselves to growing, to cultivating this quality. And it's marvellous to see how it can work, to, to really meet it in ourselves, become conscious of it as a feeling, the feeling of loving kindness, of compassion, and to see how we can feed it. It's, it was, to me, it was a huge relief when I realised this was possible. Again, as a result of the kind of conditioning and upbringing that I had, I, 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 got the story, I got the story that basically, you're born like this, this is your lot, there's nothing you can do about it. I didn't get taught that you can cultivate your heart, you can cultivate these qualities. And When I first heard the teachings on loving-kindness, it was from people who, I don't know, for whatever reason I didn't like the way they presented it, they were always going on about how I should love everybody. The way I heard it anyway was that because I wasn't loving everybody, I was a failure. And I thought, if these guys don't stop going on about loving kindness, I'm going to vomit. You know, and I confess that even sometimes used to stick earplugs in because I just could not stand hearing another talk on loving kindness. It was, it was sort of preachy. You, know? I mean, you should be loving. <laughs> you should be loving. And I wasn't loving. I was getting more angry all the time. What I did find, though, was the contemplation on, uh, on compassion. The Buddha's teaching on compassion, where, where we don't... Loving-kindness, the cultivation of loving-kindness, is where you, you wish, may I be well, may all beings be well. The cultivation of compassion is, may I be free from suffering, may all beings be free from suffering. And I suddenly discovered, well, actually... I don't know this may all beings be well business because as far as I'm concerned a whole lot of beings can just, you know, get lost. And so I didn't know that one. But I did know the feeling of what it's like may beings be free from suffering because I knew suffering. And I discovered that when I thought of a, a moment when I actually brought to my mind, to my heart, a conscious acknowledgement of what it feels like to suffer, something painful like something, you know, the pain of being dismissed as irrelevant or, or being taken advantage of or humiliated or being rejected or something that you know personally, really painful feeling. You feel that feeling as a feeling in the body, in the heart, in the mind and feel that painting of the fear of being dismissed or humiliated or whatever. And then I imagine somebody that I really cared about feeling that feeling, somebody who I counted as a good friend. I imagined them having that experience, that painful feeling that I, I knew. And immediately the heart threw up this feeling, may they be free from suffering, may they not suffer. And that was a feeling, that was an organic, a natural, real feeling. May they not suffer. And this wonderful recognition, oh, look at that, look at that. With wise contemplation, you can trigger that feeling. With skillful contemplation, you can trigger the feeling of may beings be free from suffering. And identifying that, say, well, that's compassion. That's the compassion. May beings be free from suffering. That's the, and that's what compassion feels like. And so at that point, I, it's, like, it's like getting a key to a door and being able to open a door and it's like the, into the heart of compassion. And so at that point, I was able to identify and say, right, that feeling and the thought may all beings be free from suffering can go together. And then you can dwell on it, you can really dwell on it. And it was wonderful. I could, 
I could sit on a bus and look at people and I could imagine these people suffering and I could just give right thought, may they be free from suffering. You know? Or I can go to a, a place where I have to give a public talk. A whole lot of people I haven't a clue. I don't know. Sometimes I'm in a situation where I don't know anybody in the room and I'm asked to give a talk and everybody's sitting and looking at me as if I'm some sort of an expert and I'm supposed to turn out the goods and, and oh, I, don't know, you know, I don't know what they're interested in. I don't know what they know, what they don't know. And how am I supposed to relate to them? Well, one way I can relate to them is to know they all suffer. And I can sit there and look at everybody in the room and I think everybody in this room suffers. And everybody in this room doesn't want to suffer. It's just like I don't want to suffer. And then the wonderful insight comes that takes us beyond the feeling of I'm all alone in my suffering, which is so painful. It's so painful to be locked in this thing of me and my suffering. And so this, uh, cult- this cultivation of the heart of compassion and then also goes in, it can go on also to the heart of loving kindness. Not only may all beings be free from suffering, may, may all beings be well. Once this radiance is alive in the heart, it spreads. And then once this is there, well then we can see how this natural warmth of heart takes us to an increased sense of even-mindedness. This is not just getting all gushy and feeling good about people. It also takes us to dissolving the perceptions of separateness. Me and my suffering, we're not alone in our suffering. We all suffer. All beings suffer. And the perception that I'm alone in my suffering is a false view. It's a, it's a rigid holding to something that actually compounds the problems that we have. It doesn't help us and doesn't help others. So at this time of Christmas, where there's uh, plenty of opportunity for, for intensification, whether it's um, because you're, uh, you're sitting meditation more than you used to, or whether you're going to office parties, or, or you're sitting around uh, with family, or you're still going shopping, maybe you haven't done all your shopping yet, you can be down there at um, Harvey Nichols or wherever you do your shopping. <laughs> And some of you I know go shopping at Harvey Nichols. And, and, um, <laughs> or wherever it is you do your shopping, you can, and there's all these queues of people around there. And you, Maybe you're standing in the checkout counter and you, you're wanting to get home to put the <coughs> dinner on or something, and you can feel this intensity building up. And Well, then stop and consider, well, have I developed this radiant equanimity adequately yet? And, and if not, well, then here's a chance to improve it. But I, I would suggest also, don't, don't just depend on intensification for cultivating the heart of radiant equanimity. We do also need to use our minds, we do need to contemplate, we do need to exercise discernment. We do need a lot of patience, and we also need a lot of kindness. Thank you very much for your attention.